This is Steve Carroll, and you're listening to the Basic Podcast. This episode is part two for pulmonary embolism, where we'll talk about treatment and disposition of patients with PE. It's important that you properly risk stratify patients with PE and then treat them appropriately. In this episode, we'll talk about how to properly classify PEs based on their size and hemodynamic effects, how to treat them, and how to properly disposition the patient. We'll talk about some newer PE literature that you need to be aware of because it's slowly changing how we disposition our patients. As always, this podcast is represent the views or opinions of the Department of Defense, the U.S. Army, or the Fort Hope Post Command. Before we talk about how to treat PE, we have to talk about how to classify the size of the PE. Knowing how to properly stratify patients with PE will help us figure out their treatment and disposition. The three classifications of PE are massive, submassive, and what I like to call non-massive. Non-massive is a term I've made up because I've never seen a term for those small PEs that are neither massive or submassive. One Australian doctor, Dr. Casey Parker from the Broomdocs podcast, suggested that we call these small PEs lung lint because they are sometimes so small that they don't cause any problems and they may be so small that they are a figment of the radiologist's imagination. Let's start with non-massive PEs. These are mostly PEs that are subsegmental in size with little or no derangements in the patient's vital signs and without any signs of heart strain. We'll talk about how to diagnose heart strain in a minute. On the flip side, massive PEs are those patients with unstable vital signs, cardiac arrest, or hypotension, even if that hypotension is transient. In regards to hypotension, we're talking about a systolic blood pressure of less than 90. These are sick, critically ill patients, and you probably won't have a problem picking them out because they look so terrible but don't ignore that transient hypotension because it may be a reason to pursue aggressive treatment even if they later normalize their vital signs. Now let's talk about submassive PEs. These are PEs that are causing some sort of right heart strain without causing hemodynamic instability or hypotension. They are larger than non-massive PEs, but without the hemodynamic instability of massive PEs. There are a few ways you can diagnose submassive PEs. The first is a positive troponin. In the setting of a confirmed PE, any rise in the troponin level above normal makes this a submassive PE by definition. You can think about it this way. You have a PE that has caused enough back pressure on the right side of the heart that you are causing myocardial damage, which is shown as a rise in troponin. You can also use brain natriuretic peptide, or BNP, to show this damage as well. It is also possible to show right heart strain on EKGs. The classic is the S1, Q3, T3 sign that is often talked about, but rarely seen, but it's questionable as to whether that EKG finding alone would be enough by itself to call it a submassive PE. If you're good at ultrasound and you can show that the patient has a right heart strain on echo, then that is another way to diagnose a submassive PE. The two things to look for here are an enlarged right ventricle or a bowing of the ventricular septum. Remember from anatomy that the right ventricle normally is smaller than the left ventricle, and it's a low-pressure system. So if the right side is equal in size to the left ventricle, this indicates right heart strain. Technically, the ratio is anything 0.9 or above, but a ratio of 1 is much easier to remember. For septal bowing, remember that the septum normally bows into the right ventricle. If this is reversed, then that indicates increased right-sided pressure. In the setting of a PE without hemodynamic instability, this indicates a submassive PE. If the patient was hemodynamic unstable, this would indicate a massive PE. 
If you want to learn how to use ultrasound for this indication, I will put a link to the ultrasound podcast in the show notes so you can see what these signs look like visually. Let's take a second to review that classification one more time. Non-massive PEs are those that cause no hypotension or signs of right heart strain. Keep in mind that non-massive is a term that I've made up. It's not one you'll find in the literature, as far as I can tell. Submassive PEs are those PEs that have normal or near-normal vital signs, with signs of right heart strain, such as an elevated troponin or BNP. You can also diagnose right heart strain on a bedside echo with ventricular bowing or increased right ventricular size. Finally, a massive PE is a patient who is critically ill with a PE that has caused hypotension and or cardiac arrest. As you can see, is a stepwise progression of how the PE is affecting the patient, with the first discriminator being an elevated troponin or bedside echo with right heart strain, and the next one being hypotension, unstable vital signs, or cardiac arrest. Let me talk briefly about troponin testing in suspected PE. While you should always get a troponin on those patients whom you have diagnosed with a PE, should you get that troponin on your initial set of labs when you're starting the PE workup? This seems like a benign question, but you have to think this through before you do it. There's those that argue that you can never, ever just get one set of troponins, and that troponins always need to be trended to be sure that you are having an acute MI or ACS, even in very young patients. This is a problem if you think you will send the patient home if their CTA is negative. However, you can also argue that you don't want to wait around for an hour after the CTA is positive to see if the patient has a submassive PE because you may delay their treatment. Here's my thought on this. When I first heard about this practice pattern, I wasn't a fan. However, after debating it back and forth, I now get that troponin up front. Personally, I am okay with getting that single troponin and discharging if the CT and the troponin are negative. I just document my thinking very well on my chart, saying that I don't think that this is ACS, and I think that is a reasonable approach. However, I would caution a medical student or intern in suggesting the troponin up front, because it opens you up to all sorts of questioning from your supervisor. As long as you can articulate your thinking about this, you will be okay, but keep in mind that everyone has their own theory about this. So let's say that you have a non-massive small PE. The patient is hemodynamically normal. They aren't hypotensive or hypoxic or excessively tachycardic. The current standard of care is to start anticoagulation on these patients. How we accomplish anticoagulation is something that is in flux right now because of some new literature. The traditional approach to these patients is to start unfractionated or low molecular weight heparin in the ED and admit for observation and starting warfarin, aka Coumadin. However, there is new literature to suggest that we may be able to treat these patients as outpatients, but this takes institutional policies and procedures to make this happen. We'll talk about those studies in a little while. Let's say that the patient will be admitted. You will want to start anticoagulation with either unfractionated heparin or low molecular weight heparin. You are starting heparin before warfarin for two reasons. Most importantly, if you start warfarin without doing heparin first, you will make the patient transiently hypercoagulable, which is bad for the patient and the opposite of what we're trying to do. The other reason is that heparin works a lot faster than the days to weeks it can take to get someone to a therapeutic INR using warfarin. In the U.S., low molecular weight heparin, a.k.a. anoxaparin, a.k.a. lovinox, is the most commonly used form of heparin for initiation of anticoagulation. 
the dose of Lovenox is 1 mg per kilogram sub-Q twice per day. Alternatively, you can do 1.5 mg per kilogram once a day, but I prefer the lower dose twice a day if the patient is getting admitted, just in case they have a bleeding event soon after admission. With this lower twice-a-day dose, it will wear off faster than the higher once-a-day dose. There are other low molecular weight heparins available, such as Fondaparinox, aka Erixtra, but Lovenox is by far the most commonly used low molecular weight heparin that you will encounter. If you're using unfractionated heparin, the dose is 80 units per kilogram IV as a bolus, then 18 units per kilogram per hour. Keep in mind that for MI and ACS, there's a ceiling of 5,000 units for the bolus and 1,000 units per hour for the drip, but there is no ceiling for heparin and PE treatment if the patient is obese. In theory, you can give these heparin doses sub-Q, but for whatever reason, I've never seen this done. So make sure to consult your institutional protocols and or pharmacists if you have any questions regarding dosing. You won't commonly see patients with non-massive PEs being emitted on heparin drips because it is so much easier to give a shot of Lovenox, but these heparin drips will become important for the larger and more serious PEs. One final note, do not get into the habit of starting warfarin in the ED for admitted patients. This is something that is best left to the admitting team to initiate to make sure there is no confusion. That one Lovenox shot will cover the patient for at least 12 hours, so there is no rush in starting warfarin in the ED. If you have to start warfarin in the ED for some reason, communicate clearly with the inpatient team as to the starting dose and timing of the dose. Most hospitals give warfarin only in the evening time to avoid any confusion. The usual starting dose of warfarin is 5 milligrams. Not that you need to know this because you shouldn't be starting it, but just in case. Now let's talk about patients with massive PEs. These are sick and critically ill patients who will need lots of care. These patients are hemodynamically unstable and can deteriorate quickly. These patients need thrombolytics as soon as possible and admission to the ICU. If you have a patient who is not in cardiac arrest, you will give 100 mg of TPA, aka Altaplace. This is split into a bolus of 10 mg over one minute and the other 90 mg over two hours. If the patient is on a heparin drip, you should stop the heparin drip while the TPA is infusing. If the patient is in cardiac arrest due to a PE, there is no one accepted dose for TPA. The literature on this topic is limited to case reports and case series that have given anywhere from 50 to 100 mg of TPA as a bolus plus or minus a continued infusion. In some studies, they did a 15 mg loading dose followed by the other 85 mg over 90 minutes, but other studies have used 50 mg as a single bolus or 100 mg as a single bolus, so the doses are all over the place. After looking at these studies, I think the easiest thing to do is to just give 100 mg as a bolus over one minute and be done with it. Trying to calculate or deliver some sort of infusion during a code will take away resources from high-quality CPR and unnecessarily burn the team leader with trying to make decisions based on literature that has no clear answer. If you want more info on this, I will put a link in the show notes to a blog post by Brian Hayes on Academic Life in EM that talks about this issue. Now what about those patients with submassive PE? These patients should be started on a heparin drip and should be admitted to a modern setting, preferably the ICU. The reason why is that they have a higher risk of suddenly decompensating, 
compared to those non-sick small PEs. These patients need to be closely watched for any decompensation and should have thrombolytics at their bedside in case they become unstable. You will want to do an unfractionated heparin drip instead of a shot of Lovenox because you will want the ability to turn off the heparin if you give thrombolytics. If you give Lovenox to these patients, you are stuck with its effects for at least 12 hours. So here's the big question about submassive PEs. Should they get thrombolytics as a standard treatment? Earlier studies on this issue failed to show a mortality benefit for thrombolytics unless you have a massive PE, but having a submassive PE is not good for your heart or lungs either. Having a large clot in your lungs for a long time can lead to pulmonary hypertension that can turn young, healthy people into pulmonary cripples. So while there is no mortality benefit, is there a benefit in regards to later functional status? There are two recent studies that tried to address this question. They are the Moppet and PITHO trials. The Moppet trial used half-dose TPA and found equivalent rates of bleeding and mortality, but with a lower rate of pulmonary hypertension at hospital discharge and six months later. The PITHO trial used full-dose tenecteplase, a thrombolytic similar to TPA, and showed a decrease in the rate of hemodynamic collapse in the first seven days. Mortality was the same between the two groups. However, in both of these trials, they carefully selected for healthier patients who were most likely to benefit and not have bad side effects. In the Moppet trial, they didn't show any higher rate of intracranial bleeding with the half-dose TPA, but the PITHO trial showed an increased rate of intracranial hemorrhage. However, this increased rate of intracranial hemorrhage was mostly due to patients over the age of 75, so you can make a reasonable argument that this therapy only be used in patients under the age of 75. It's all about the patient's baseline. I'll use myself as an example. I'm 31 years old, and I have no medical problems and a normal exercise tolerance. So if I came in with submassive PE, I would beg, borrow, and steal in order to get half-dose TPA like in the Moppet trial in order to possibly avoid becoming a pulmonary cripple, especially due to the fact that there wasn't an increased rate of intracranial hemorrhage. However, if your patient is an 85-year-old with a previous hemorrhagic stroke who is bedridden from a nursing home, thrombolytics are not a good idea because they are likely to do more harm than good in a patient with so many comorbidities and poor functional status. Also keep in mind that you want to avoid thrombolytics in anyone at high risk for bleeding the same way you would for ischemic stroke. Before we wrap this up, let's talk about two issues. When to give heparin prior to CT scan, and what about treating PE as an outpatient? Do we really need to admit every small PE to the hospital? Let's say that you have a 20-year-old patient with some chest pain that has you slightly concerned for PE, enough that you decided to get a CT for it. Maybe their pulse rate is 105, so they failed PERC and a D-dimer, but there is no hypotension, no hypoxia, and they look great. Do we need to give this patient heparin superstat so they don't code on the scanner? Probably not, as this will expose them to heparin without much benefit, and they are really stable. If they can get a CT within a timely fashion, you don't need to worry too much about giving heparin right away. Now, your definition of timely fashion is different from mine, so this is where you have to use your judgment. The bottom line is that if you have a low-risk patient, then they probably don't need heparin started before they get their CT. Let's talk about the flip side. Let's say that you have a patient whose dog could diagnose their massive PE. They should definitely get a heparin drip started immediately prior to going to CT, 
and you should bring the thrombolytics to the scanner with you as you accompany the patient. For these patients, call the scanner and clear the table, give the heparin bolus, and start the drip on the way to the scanner. If you see right-sided heart strain on the bedside ultrasound, and you're super sure that this is a massive PE, and you think you can't make it to the scanner, then you may even need to start the thrombolytics before the CT. Finally, let's say that you have a medium risk patient. They are in their 50s and they have a decent story for PE, but not great and their vitals look pretty good. You think they are somewhere in the medium risk category for PE and they need a CT scan. Do these patients need heparin before the CT? The current AHA guidelines say that medium risk patients should get heparin before CT, but I don't think this is the right thing to do and this isn't supported in any other guidelines that I could find. I feel as if we see these medium risk patients all the time and most of them have a probability of PE well less than 50%, so I don't agree with anticoagulating these patients prior to CT. Keep in mind that heparin is not a thrombolytic, and it will not do anything to dissolve the clot that is already there. It only prevents you from adding more to that clot. Since a heparin will not start dissolving that clot right away, I think you can wait for the CT scan, as long as you don't have to wait too long to get one. Let's wrap this up by talking about outpatient management for PE. I'm not going to say a lot about this topic, because others have done entire podcasts on this, but let's talk about the basics. Let's go back to that low-risk patient who is young and healthy. We now have new oral anticoagulants that work like Lovenox, so you can get rid of warfarin entirely and not have the the pain-in-the-butt INR monitoring that patients hate. So can you send the right patients home on Lovenox or these newer oral anticoagulants and avoid admission? The answer is maybe. There have been some studies that have looked at this issue, and it can work really well in carefully selected healthy patients with non-massive PE that follow strict criteria. If you have the right patient, this may be a great option, but you need institutional support and primary care follow-up to make this work well. If you want to hear more about this, I'll put a link in the show notes to an episode of the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine that talks about this issue. Before we wrap this up, let's review all this rapid fire. Non-massive PEs are the small PEs that don't cause right heart strain or grossly abnormal vital signs, especially hypotension with a systolic blood pressure less than 90. Submassive PEs are those that have signs of right heart strain without hemodynamic instability. Right heart strain is diagnosed with an elevated troponin or less commonly elevated BMP. You can also diagnose right heart strain with an ultrasound that shows ventricular septal bowing from right to left or an increased right ventricular size with a ratio of 0.9 or greater between right ventricle size and left ventricle size. Finally, massive PEs are those that cause hemodynamic instability, including even transient hypotension or cardiac arrest. In regards to treatment for PE, for the non-massive PEs, start unfractionated or low molecular weight heparin. For low molecular weight heparin, you will most often use anoxaparin, aka Lovenox, at 1 mg per kilogram sub-Q twice a day, or 1.5 mg per kilogram sub-Q once a day. I prefer using the 1 mg per kilogram twice a day from the ED. You should not routinely start warfarin, aka Coumadin, in the ED. You should let the inpatient team do it. If you absolutely have to start it, the starting dose of warfarin is 5 mg PO once a day. Patients with non-massive PEs can be admitted to a modern tele setting. Outpatient management is on the horizon, but you need to have institutional protocols and support to do this correctly. 
For patients with submassive PE, they should be started on a heparin drip and admitted to an intensive care unit or possibly a step-down setting. These patients have a higher risk of acute decompensation, so we admit them for closer monitoring to prevent bad outcomes. To start the heparin drip, it's 80 units per kilogram IV as a bolus and 18 units per kilogram per hour as a drip. These patients should have thrombolytics at their bedside to be given in case they crash. There is emerging evidence to suggest that well-selected younger patients with submassive PE may benefit from thrombolytics in regards to reduction in later incidents of pulmonary hypertension. For patients with a massive PE, these patients need thrombolytics ASAP. If the patient is on a heparin drip, stop the drip and administer 100 mg of TPA IV with 10 mg as a bolus over one minute and the other 90 mg over two hours. Make sure to always look up this dose. For patients in cardiac arrest, the dosing and case series is all over the place. My two cents is to give 100 mg IV as a slow push over one minute. That's all I have on pulmonary embolism. Please email me your thoughts or post your questions or comments at embasic.org. Don't forget about the EM Basic Project. Send me your submissions to keep the podcast rolling. Starting next week, I will be on a month-long training exercise with the Army where I really won't have internet access, so I'm going to be off the net for a while. So if you email me or leave a comment on embase.org, I'll get back to you as soon as I get back from training. I'm going to try to record one more episode before I leave and release that somewhere in the middle of the month of training, so stay tuned. Until next time, this is Steve Carroll for the EM Basic Podcast, signing off.